Welcome to the second episode of Engulfed, a podcast from Loyola University New Orleans' student-run newspaper, The Maroon, seeking to investigate instances of environmental injustice in Southeast Louisiana communities. Tyler Priest is an associate professor of history and geography at the University of Iowa with a specialization in energy and environmental history. In July of 2010, he testified before the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill and offshore drilling. I uh, was called in to testify before the commission in, I think it was July of 2010, and uh, to provide historical context on offshore drilling. A lot of people had no idea that there were even drilling operations happening offshore, let alone in 5,000 feet of water. So uh, my role was to sort of explain how that came to be. And then after I testified, I was invited to join the commission to, you know, continue providing this sort of historical context to the disaster. According to Priest, deep water drilling began in the 1990s as oil industry moved from beyond the edge of the continental shelf. The technologies had had advanced to a point where they could drill in almost any depth uh, using, you know, mobile drilling vessels, floating floaters, they're called. Um, They don't require, uh, they don't need to be attached to the seafloor. They can drill and stay on location because of something called dynamic position. This new technology allowed oil companies like BP to drill in water that was 1,300 feet or deeper through leasing semi-submersible drilling vessels. BP operated an oil well named Moncondo Prospect in Mississippi Canyon Block 252, which, according to Priest, is at the mouth of the Mississippi River. They were drilling that lease in in, um, April um, 2010, and they had an uncontrolled blowout. Um, and the the gas coming out of the uh, you know the um, the well uh, caught fire, exploded, killed eleven people. The rest were uh, managed to be rescued, and the and the semi-submersible sunk to the bottom. The well, as well as a marine riser, broke, and oil flowed out uncontrollably until June of 2010. It wasn't until July 15th when the oil well was capped that the site was under control. Fishing and, and shrimping seasons were halted. Um, every, a, lot of, a lot of major economic impacts as well as environmental impact. The remnants of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, marine scientist Christopher Reedy says still exists today. I don't know what's happened since um, the last hurricane, but I could easily have gone to Grand Isle and found some very small remnants of oil from Deepwater Horizon. I could uh, land in Pensacola, Florida tomorrow, and if I looked hard enough and knew what I was looking for, I could find remnants of oil uh, from Deepwater Horizon 11 years later. That, if you know where to look for it, you could find it. Oil spills, like the Deepwater Horizon, challenge the livelihood for communities who live off of what the Gulf provides. The Maroon spoke with Amy Dominique, owner of West Wego business Amy Seafood. This conversation with Dominique was not recorded per her wishes. 
Amy's seafood had just recovered from the economic hardships caused by Hurricane Katrina when its seafood supply was spoiled by the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. The effect on the supply and demand, she says, lasted at least six to nine months. A lot of the negative impacts that are associated with oil spills and other unfortunate events is the mental health component. The stress, the anxiety, the unknown, and you know those are pretty well documented. Again, I, I'm not a mental health um, scientist, but I can tell you that when somebody makes a living from the ocean and says, when can I stop feeding my family again? You know, that hits home. And, you know, I once went on and did some field work after Deepwater Horizon with a very nice man out of Kokoju, Louisiana. And, you know, he was in tears as we were looking at this oil along some of the, the coastline. I mean, it's real and it hurts people. It hits home really hard. You know, you're uncertain about your jobs. You're uncertain about the tourism. You're uncertain about, I mean, I've been at oil spills where people will say, should I sell my house? Because now the beach has been oiled and I'm not gonna have as much. So these are big questions that don't necessarily put you in the hospital with a breathing disorder, but they hit home. And often the case, folks who don't have the best access to medicine and, and have the opportunities to get evaluated are the ones who, um, who feel it the most. Dominique says she was restless, especially as someone who is not a person to sit around. And without a second income, she says her business could have collapsed. According to Priest, the history of determining who has the right to regulate offshore drilling dates back to the 1940s. First of all, I should step back. The Supreme Court in 1947, in a case against California, and then 1950 against Texas and Louisiana, Louisiana determined that the continental shelf, on the continental shelf, the federal government has paramount rights. Okay, so this is federal territory. And so that upset a lot of states' rights people. This goes back to legislation in, the 19, in 1953, after a long battle between the federal government and coastal states about, over who controlled the submerged lands offshore. Did it, was this federal property or was this property of the states? And so it became a big states' rights cause, which resonated with you know, the southern states' defense of Jim, Jim Crow on, on uh, states' rights issues, so-called state rights issues. And I mean, I could talk more about that history if you want, but what happened was that in 1953, after Dwight Eisenhower was elected, the, they came to a compromise. The upshot was that in 53, Congress passed something called the Submerged Lands Act, which said that states have control out to three miles Okay. This was just sort of traditional um, territorial sea going back centuries. And then beyond three miles, it's federal. And then at the same time, Congress passed legislation that gave the federal government the, the authority to offer leases on that federal portion. The states had already been leasing, you know, uh, and they started leasing you know, just, you know, a little ways offshore in the late 30s. And then after World War II really picked up and that's when the federal government stepped in and said, no, you don't, you don't, you're not entitled to do this. Um, so they, they found this compromise. So the states have 
control up to three miles, federal government beyond. The states were given the opportunity to try to prove that they were entitled to a larger band. And Texas and the west coast of Florida were able to prove that historically they had rights out to three leagues instead of three miles, which is about 10 and a half miles. Um, Louisiana tried over decades to prove that they had uh, they had historical claims beyond three miles, but they were never were, were successful in the courts. So that's why Louisiana only has it out to three miles and Texas has it out to 10 and a half. While there are significant oil drilling regulations from the federal government, multiple agencies have a say in regulating drilling activity in the Gulf, resulting in clashing legislation. The Department of the Interior was given the authority through the Bureau of Land Management and the U.S. Geological Survey to offer leases and tend to issue permits and regulate activity uh, offshore. Those two, those two agencies were combined in 1982 uh, to, into something called the Minerals Management Service, and that was the beleaguered federal agency that was criticized for not sufficiently regulating and overseeing offshore oil in the deep water horizon. And then uh, as a result of that disaster, the authority over offshore oil was split into three, three uh, agencies. One is called the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. They offer leases and do all the environmental impact studies. Um, the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement, which does just that, enforces safety and environmental laws and regulations offshore. And there's something called the Office of Natural Resource Revenue, which manages all the federal revenue that comes in. The government auctions off land to companies in the Gulf of Mexico. And that land is then divided into grid blocks of approximately 5,630 square acres. If a company drills on a block that they bought at auction price, and there happens to be oil there, then Priest says the federal government gets a portion of these oil profits. On May 24, 2010, BP committed $500 million over a 10-year period to create an independent research program called the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative to study the impact of the oil spill on the environment and public health in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, there was, you know, a lot of mortality of certain species. There was a lot of oil that remained in the ocean column a long time and on, on the ocean bottom, you know, corals and chemosynthetic communities affected. And, you know, and that research effort is, you know, they just, they issued a sort of 10-year report on, on what they know. Um, yeah, but it's, it's going to be an ongoing process to, to study, you know, the long-term ecological impacts of this. Studies from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration found that all 21 species of Gulf marine mammals were exposed to oil when they breathed in contaminated air or liquid oil. The consequences include lung impacts like compromised immune systems and impaired stress responses, and an estimated 56,000 to 166,000 small juvenile sea turtles were killed by the oil spill, and an additional 35,000 hatchlings were lost. Scientists believe that there has been a 51% population decrease in the Barataria Bay stock of dolphins due to the high mortality rates from the oil spill and their impaired ability to reproduce offspring. <laughs> 
The decline of aquatic animals' health and population, Dominique says, was also detrimental to her seafood company. Following the oil spill, she said her supply of oysters was minimized due to falling oyster beds, crabs that were inedible due to oil clogged in their bodies, and seafood became less of a commodity as people prioritized their safety. BP was found to be negligent, which sort of maximized, criminally neg negligent, which maximized the amount of money they had to pay per barrel of oil spilled. Then there was all sorts of, you know, um, you know, legal proceedings about just how much oil was spilled, <laughs> because that would determine how much BP would eventually owe. Four million barrels of oil were spilled from the Macondo well over an 87-day period. Under the Clean Water Act, BP was responsible for paying a $5.5 billion penalty and up to $8.8 billion in natural resource damages. Reedy, who is a marine biologist, says that while this event was an anomaly, most species that were affected have recovered, while a few others have not. For, for example, after Deepwater Horizon, which was a huge anomaly, again, just about most species recovered. Three areas that, that were still feeling it from, from what I, my research are salt marshes, especially the ones up in Barataria Bay. There were some corals, what we call deepwater corals, very deep in the Gulf of Mexico. Folks would never even know there were some deepwater corals, but they're there and some of the larger fish. And uh, those three are all ones that take a long time to grow. So if you impact them, it's, it takes a certain amount of time for them to reestablish. It could take 39 years following the Deepwater Horizon oil spill for the dolphin population to recover in Barataria Bay, according to the NOAA. And while Dominique said her seafood stock is pretty much recovered, she is still questioned by some of her customers on the safety and sanity of her stock. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Engulf. Come back next time as the Maroon investigates the sociological impact of hurricanes on southeastern Louisiana residents. Today's podcast was written by Dominique Tolliver, executive produced and edited by Brendan Heffernan, and collaborated on by Ray Wahlberg. I'm Dominique Tolliver. We'll see you next time.